X-ray. It's, it's like a well-constructed symphony. Um, the parts all contribute to a final crescendo. That sounded a bit naff. Yeah, probably it does. Never mind. <laughs> and welcome to the Beervana podcast. I am Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, uh, and I introduce myself because I'm alone today in the studios of X-Ray FM in the Falcon Art Building in North Portland because my erstwhile companion Jeff, uh, that is Jeff Allworth, author of The Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers, and The Beer Bible, is off in the old country doing research for the new edition of The Beer Bible. The Beer Bible, comma, the New Testament. Uh, okay, no, actually I think it's going to be Beer Bible Volume 2 or something like that. Uh, you can follow Jeff's excellent adventure at uh, his blog, the Beer Vana blog, on, or on his Twitter, and he even has an Instagram, I found out. Um, I'm learning the new ways. And we are going to have Jeff, through the miracle of the intertubes, join us remotely. He has left England uh, and is now in Belgium. Uh, hello, Jeff. America calling. Are you there? I'm very fun. No, I'm actually. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> Hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> Through the magic of technology, it sounds like I'm right there in the studio. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of um, when you and I studied in India in 1988. You could try to make a call across New Delhi and you couldn't hear anything. It'd be. <laughs> Uh, but they had launched. <laughs> You're calling through a garbage truck. Yeah, but they had launched a satellite, a communication satellite. So international calls, although really hard to book and really expensive, but they were very clear. Not as clear as this, however. No, we have that was 1988 in India, yeah, and now here we are. 20th. How how are you doing? How is your adventure so far, Jeff? Uh, well, thank God we had some inane chatter. Uh, that was nice. Uh, I'm doing great. Wow, that's it. Just great. <laughs> I have spent the last, so uh, to apologize for myself in advance, I've spent the last six hours with Yvonne DeBates at uh, Brasserie de la Seine here in Brussels, Belgium, and um, there may have been some beer consumed, and I'm also a little bit tired, so, um, you know, I... Uh, the sparkling repartee you normally expect from me <laughs> may be slightly dulled it's, by... It, it's always good um, to... It's always good to set the expectations really low to start. So that's good. good yeah. Well, you, yeah, it's what the politicos always say. If you want small talk, I'll, I'll give you small talk. You picked a good time to not be in Portland, Oregon, because the weather here sucks. It's, uh, it was uh, 75 and sunny here in Brussels today. Yeah. I don't want to hear it. It's been cold and wet and rainy, which people say, oh, it's Portland. You should be. Well, in Portland as I think we've referenced before since we talk about the weather a lot, there's usually a pretty reliable, warm, sunny, dry season uh, that's not supposed to end yet. (laughs) Uh, So uh, uh, it's been bad. I have a whole bunch of uh, roofing material on my roof because the roofers are going to start replacing my roof at the beginning of the week, and they've just given up on the week entirely. It's that bad. Okay, so uh, we're not going to talk about Belgium yet. We're going to leave that for future pods. We are going to talk today about England, uh, uh, the, uh, my other country that you've just left. Uh, yes, I'm a UK citizen and subject of the Queen, so let's hope I don't have to resort to drastic measures because I swore an oath to defend her, and I plan to keep that oath. Before, okay. we, before we get to your excellent England adventure, I'd like to take the moment to thank uh, Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beervana podcast. Uh, you can find Freem in Hood River, Oregon, or at freembeer.com. That's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R.com. Uh, we've talked about this before. Really excited to have Freem as a sponsor. This isn't something where uh, we just waited for someone to knock on our door. We actively went out and, re- and went to breweries that we admire, uh, uh, Freem being at the very top of the list, uh, and uh, we're very grateful that they decided to uh, join us in the sponsorship partner. Uh, this sponsorship partnership. Uh, so with that behind us, let's talk about your England trip. And what I w- wanted to actually do because uh, of um, the Freem connection, I wanted to ask you about your uh, event that you hosted with friend of the pod, uh, Reverend Nat of Reverend Nat's uh, Cider at the Cloudwater Brew Company in uh, what is known as, uh, to us uh, uh, Londoners, the North, uh, Manchester. <laughs> Right, and, and the north starts much like um, the upper Midwest, nowhere near 
halfway across the country. It's actually south of the median line, which is a funny thing, but the, the north, geography is odd. The north basically starts as soon as you leave the greater London area. <laughs> in fact, that's my, that's my favorite thing about, about uh, uh, traveling in England is you get on the A1 leaving London and almost immediately the, the, uh, the road signs say in big capital letters, the north. <laughs> it, it, it feels very Game of Thronesy. <laughs> yes. Well, I was in the uh, yeah, I was in the wonderful town in Manchester for that event. As I, there's actually two events. I was at uh, a cider event with Reverend Nat, and then the next day I was at uh, the Cloudwater event, and Nat was not at that one. Oh, I conflated the um, two. My apologies. No worries. Um, you wouldn't have known. Uh, the the Cloudwater event was a cool event that we set up, which was a Portland showcase. And we had uh, Portland plus one, and the plus one was, was Freem, which I shoehorned in because nice. I felt like it, it was good to have um, Freem, to have folks there have Freem. That was actually even before we had them as a sponsor, so completely uh, legitimate there. Uh, so it was Freem, Gigantic, Breakside, um, Cascade. Upright. Upright. And one more. Is that six? <laughs> there were six. I think that was five. Uh, I think that's five, but I wouldn't yeah, have got it. Five, two. Uh, there were six great breweries. Oh, man, so bad. I can't remember who I've forgotten. But anyway, the point was we were, um, they wanted to kind of expose people to what it would be like to, uh, if you came to Portland and, and I talk, we talked about Portland beer, and then I did a lot of describing about what it was like in the Northwest and uh, how the Northwest sits into the, the tapestry of American beer and what our role was. And um, that kind of unspooled into a larger discussion about beer. And we, we had a tasting, so we, we did six beers. Oh, it was, it was ecliptic, of course, ecliptic. Yes. Um, and uh, we said, we actually did start out with uh, Freem Pilsner because the others were a little bit more robust in flavor. And um, so that was uh it was a great time, and I think everybody's really impressed with the Portland beer. That gives me which, which sorry, that gives me a per perfect excuse to open up my own Freem yeah. Pilsner that I have here in the studio. Uh, just because, Excellent. I, mostly because I'm thirsty. It was a long bike ride to get up here, <laughs> but uh, I have a Freem Pilsner here. So as you talk about your event, I'm going to uh, uh, open up my Freem Pilsner. So go ahead and excuse my beer noise. Cool. Well. Um, because I think that a lot of our listeners, listeners especially the ones in, on X-Ray FM, are uh, familiar with uh, many of the Oregon breweries, I'll just say the Cloudwater Brewery that I was visiting is one of the new craft breweries in uh, Manchester. It's actually not that new, but it's three years old or something like that. And they're famous for making, or they have made um, some buzz by making IPAs, and I, I hesitate to say that they make hazy IPAs, although they're pretty hazy, because it sort of gives the wrong message. They're, they're really um, fairly straightforward IPAs that have a modern palate, um, juicy tropicality, but, but quite a bit drier than some of the more uh, uh, you know, exaggerated examples of the style. Yeah. Um, and so I, I toured beforehand. I got to tour the brewery with uh, one of the one of the founders, Paul Jones, and hang out with him all day. So it was it was a really nice kind of transition from learning all about his jam into telling him kind of all about my jam and what it's like in Portland. Uh, so that was fun, and I think it was we had it was a ticketed crowd, and we had probably about forty five people there, and they were all very excited. Nice. Uh, Mancunians about yeah, it was really cool and. A lot of questions, a lot of engagement, and they, they seemed really engaged. And they all, they all said they would like to go see Portland, and I don't know how many would actually make that, but it, it was cool. It's a great event. Yeah, they had a, uh, they had a tweet, uh, speaking of Freem Pilsner. They said, the standard of beer we enjoyed was incredibly high, including this superbly clean and precise Pilsner from Freem, which I am now uh, in the studio enjoying. Yeah, um, Freem, it is, we should say that uh, Freem's Pilsner is, I think that, the brightest one on the market. It is so crystal clear, always. Yeah, it's and uh, it was it was for the event too. They were kind of staggered by how bright it was. Yeah, it's got a beautiful um, uh, malt base, but it has a little extra uh, bitter snap to it. It's really really enjoyable. Hmm. Ah, so, uh, well, that's cool. Um, by the way, I should mention because um, I have some inside information uh, as we 
we're going we're gonna to get to the news segment in a moment, but uh, Oktoberfest is upon us, and I have it on good authority, and good authority means I have it straight from free themselves, uh, that they're coming out with a special Oktoberfest-style lager, uh, and they'll be pouring steins of it uh, from Gravity Kegs in their Hood River Tasting Room this Saturday the 21st, and again next Saturday the 28th of September. Uh, that's this Saturday and next Saturday in the Hood River Tasting Room. For those of you who are local, uh, go out and try their Oktoberfest. Um, Excellent. Yeah, which brings me uh, to the news. So let's uh, jump to the news segment. Okay, so uh, the news I want to feature today is not really news, actually, but more of a public service announcement for those local or traveling to the Pacific Northwest for fresh hop season. Fresh hop season is upon us. This is also a good way uh, for me to try and soothe my raging jealousy of you, Jeff, on your beer European adventure. You're missing he- fresh hop season, so nah, nah, nah. <laughs> it is true, and I, I don't know who scheduled this, but I, I blame them for this. Yeah. I, this is one of my favorite times of year. Yeah. As you know, we love to go out together and drink those beers. you got to so. talk to your people. Yeah, so speaking of... I do. My damn people. I blame <laughs> it on the people. <laughs> Uh, I don't know which one though, your publicist, your agent, <laughs> your PR, your scheduler, your groomer. Yeah. They'll uh, all pass it off on each other. <laughs> uh, so the Hood River Hops Fest is this Saturday from 12 to 8 in the public parking lot. There, I don't know what they call that parking lot, but you can't miss it. It's not a big, not a big town. You'll find it. Just get yourself there. Uh, and I mentioned that because Saturday, of course, is where you can go find the Oktoberfest at Freem. So do a do a, uh, a double dip there. Double Mountain is also fantastic downtown as well, and you can go see where it all started at, at uh, Full Sail as well. So uh, the Hood River Fresh Hops, oh, no, they just call it the Hood River Hops Fest is here. Uh, it's Saturday, 12 to 8. And then the Portland Fresh Hop Fest is Friday, September 27th uh, from 5 to 9 p.m. and Saturday, September 28th from noon to 8 at Oaks Park, and that's the one you and I usually go to, uh, which has awesome, uh, usually an awesome collection of uh, fresh hop uh, beers from uh, around the area. Uh, I regret not being there, so go in my stead. Yeah, this is one of the the wonders of being in the midst of uh, beautiful hop fields all around the Lambert Valley and also in eastern Washington. So um, uh, there's lots of uh, great hops available for these brewers, and they've become really, really good at figuring out how to use these things. So uh, early on, fresh hop beers were tended to be kind of uh, vegetal and weedy and uh, often not wonderful uh but now they're almost always wonderful and this brings me to uh the main topic of today which is your visit uh to harvey's uh, brewing uh company in um uh, lewis and sussex uh and the reason that brings me to that is because uh i had a little gander at what we're going to listen to in, in the future and they themselves do a a, a fresh hot beer it turns out and have yeah it's not cool and have been for a while uh, so, why yeah. don't, so why don't I throw it to you? Why don't you tell me about your visit to Harvey's and who you talked to and uh, what we're going to be hearing today on the pod? Cool. Well, I can start with our trip eight years ago uh, down to Hove. We stayed at Hove, I believe it was, near Brighton. Uh, and we visited the Dark Star Brewery, which is now uh, Mark Tranter, who was one of the guys we we visited there, started a new brewery in Lewis oh, called right? Burning Sky. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So um, when we were, and when we were down there, that the Burning Sky thing is just a little bonus throw in. But when we were down there, we stopped at a Harvey's pub. And I don't know if you remember this, but we had Harvey's Bitter at this pub and we were both kind of transfixed by it. <laughs> I do remember. Yeah. And I, ever since I had that pint, I thought I want to go back to Harvey's. And then as I, you know, I, I did some research and found out that they're this really renowned uh, brewery. And uh, the more I learned about it, the more I, I, I wanted to go back. So um, every time I do one of these tours to a place like uh, uh, Belgium, Germany, or uh, the UK, I try to go to old traditional breweries, sometimes breweries that maybe have been around a lot, but aren't really, um, they're family breweries, but they haven't maybe done a lot of stuff that we think of as innovative, but they've survived for centuries. I think those are interesting places. And then I go to new breweries. And uh, in, in when I was in the UK, uh, I went to, a, I toured a couple of cask breweries and I made a special trip to leave London uh, early so that I could drive, head down to Lewis solely so I could see Harvey's, um, which is, in the South, I think the most well-regarded uh, 
Cascale Brewery. They've been there. It says on the, the side of their uh, brewery that they've been there since the 18th century. It's actually not quite accurate. Um, the original company was an importer, and they didn't start brewing until the 19th century. But, you know, they've been there a solid 100-odd years. Uh, yeah, and, maybe and all... 150. And uh, if there's any question that it's a, a glorious uh, visit and almost museum piece, uh, uh, listeners only need to navigate to your blog, the Beervana blog, where you have some stunningly beautiful pictures of, uh, uh, of the brewery. Yeah, absolutely. And the, so the last thing I'll say is just inter- introduce uh, Miles Jenner. There's a tradition in English brewing that is largely unique in, in the brewing world of uh, the old gentleman head brewer. And uh, these guys are, they're often working class guys who come out of a, uh, a uh, you know, a, a pretty blue collar background, but they go to college and then they get a, a, an advanced degree in brewing, right. often at Harry, Harriet Watt or one of these things, come back to a brewery and work their way up and become a kind of quasi uh, white collar person, so they'll wear a suit and a tie to work. Right. Yes. Um, but they're, but you know, but it's it's cla- they're classically still blue collar people, and um, these guys are kind of dying out. You know, as the industry changes, the grand old uh, gentleman brewers, um, head brewers, are are fewer and far in between. And many of the ones that we saw, John Beckson, George Howell, uh, I can't think of his name, the guy at Samuel Smith, John Keeling, mm-hmm. Derek Prentice. Yeah. These guys have all retired. So uh, there's not so many of them left. And, and uh, Miles Jenner is one of them. He wears a lab suit and a tie. And he is the second generation brewer uh, in his family. His father was the head brewer at Harvey's. And he's not a part of the management because there's that separation, right? He's still a working class guy. So they still work for the brewery. Right. But, um, but he's actually fifth generation head brewer. Wow. Back, back to whatever that is. Great, great grandfather how many greats that is <laughs> right um and he has a little they they um they have this really cool thing at harvey's where there's this place that you can that you can say it's the brewer's house and it's on the site and it's uh this gorgeous old building that is connected to the brewery and he took me in there after our tour uh, i spent about five hours with him so this interview is just a small portion of the day that i spent with him and he showed me the portraits every one of the uh, the master brewers has had their in the Jenner family has had their portrait, in, including Miles, and his was made at the behest of his family. Uh, must have been right around like the late '80s, early '90s, uh-huh. at the time when uh, lapels were quite large and uh-huh. shoulders were quite large, and he was a lot younger man. <laughs> so that really cracked me up. But he is a when you hear this interview, he failed, you'll he, he understand. Failed to get a snap of that one. I, I felt like he had invited me into his house, and in that that was not part of the tour. Yeah, you know, that was right. um, we had spent enough time together, and he was just showing me something intimate about his life. And I felt like uh, that's as a writer, I, I I like to respect some boundaries. And when somebody invites you into your house, it's not it's not appropriate to start taking photos, in right. my view. So I I, I didn't yep. do that, but um, uh, I did feel I, I clearly felt like it wasn't a transgression to describe the experience, uh, which I've just done, but. Um, when you hear this interview, I think you'll understand something of what I mean when I say the gentleman uh, head brewer. He has a really um, a formal and precise way of speaking, but also very warm and not posh. So he's a lovely man. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before we we'll, we'll do the interview next, before we do the interview, I do need to this is going to sound a little like a frame centric pod today, but we're pretty excited about this new sponsorship. And uh, we actually have. I'm excited about this part because we actually have something real that we can offer uh, listeners who've never had this before. Um, we always just sh- uh, 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 talk about talk about the beer, but um, the there's a new project that Freem Family Brewers uh, is engaged in, and it's they're calling it the Freemsters Union Local 541, 541 being the area code of Hood River. Uh, this is a bottle club where you get a quarterly allotments of rare Freem beer. Uh, you get six pairs each time, or 12 bottles, for a total of 48 bottles a year. 
if you sign up now in 2019, you'll you'll be considered a founding member and get 10% off each allocation. And in fact, you do get uh, 10% off other things as well, uh, as I understand. Um, I'll, I'll look down at my fact sheet here in a minute. But you can either have it shipped to you anywhere in Oregon, or you or your designated trustee can pick it up uh, directly uh, from the Freem Brewery in Hood River. Uh, if you want it shipped, it costs a little extra, something like 18 bucks or so. Uh, but you'll get varietals, new releases, and special styles brewed with un- union members uh, in mind. Um, you get a bunch of other things as well. You get, uh, oh yeah, the 10% off is future in-house and online bottle purchases. You get you can get discounts at the Best Western in Hood River if you want to come and stay. Uh, you get beer education events and all kinds of other cool stuff. But here's what's fun about this, is that uh, right now they're just rolling this thing out and there's a wait list for the club. But they have, as a part of our uh, jump-starting our, our sponsorship uh, collaboration here with the podcast, for Beervana podcast listeners, if you email union at freembeer.com, that's union at P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R.com, and mention the Beervana podcast, you'll get an exclusive invite to the club. In other words, you get to bypass the wait list. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. I'm really excited about this. Like we've never had this. That's very cool. We've never had this thing before. And I was, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and you know, a lot of these sponsorships, like they'll they'll have the they'll send like, you know, uh, uh, me undies or something like that. We'll send underwear to the podcast host, and they're like, yeah, I tried these undies, and they're wonderful. And uh, <laughs> it always sounds so inauthentic. But what I like about this is that. We've uh, raved about free beer for years, and uh, it was really nice to uh, to join up with a company that we admire so uh, so much. So uh, fall allocations are coming on October 11th, so you got to act now if you want your fall allocation. Uh, so once again, email uh, union at freembeer.com, mention the Beer Vana podcast, and you will jump the queue uh, and uh, get into the Freemsters Union Local 541. Uh, Ooh, go free. Yeah, go, go free. I think I might do it actually. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's uh, let's head uh, head back to Lewis uh, in Sussex to visit the legendary Harvey's Brewery and uh, listen to your interview with Miles Jenner, head brewer at Harvey's. I said that twice. Uh, anything else you want to say before we listen? No, let's turn it over to Miles. He's, right. he's beautiful to listen to more so than you and me. <laughs> okay, here's Miles. All right, I am here uh, with Miles Jenner at Harvey's Brewery in Lewis, uh, Sussex. Yes, am I right about that? Absolutely. Uh, UK. And um, Harvey's is one of the uh, uh, most well-regarded traditional Cascale breweries in the UK. And uh, you are, tell us a little bit about your background. You are... Apparently, you, you suggest that it was not un, unheard of before, but I've never heard of, of uh, somebody who is a second-generation brewer. So talk about that. Well, my family were actually brewers um, in London in the 18th century, so I am the fifth generation of an uninterrupted, uninterrupted line of brewers going back to the um, 18th century. Um, but um, my family brewery, or well, family brewery in in London was sold in 1938. My father was looking for a job. He had just qualified as a brewer and he found a job at Harvey's. So I grew up in the brewer's house alongside the brewery yard and really had the smell of brewing in my nostrils from a very early age and used the brewery as my playground. So uh, it was a fairly natural uh, desire to enter into brewing. I found it a very romantic industry and I graduated from Edinburgh University and then had four years with Green King training and then I was offered a job at Harvest to come back so I worked under my father who was head brewer and then he retired and there was one in between us for a couple of years and I became head brewer so yes one generation of head brewer practically following another direct. And when did your father start here? He started in 1938, uh, and he retired as head brewer in 1984. Wow. And you uh, started in 1980, is that what you told me? I started at Harvest in 1980, yes. Wow, that's remarkable. So tell us a little bit about Harvey's, uh, the background, and what you do here in Lewis. 
Well, we are very much in the heart of the county town of Lewis, where uh, in the bottom end of the town where the river runs through, and it was the traditional commercial area of the town, so barge transport was bringing uh, raw materials, coal, what have you, up the river. And uh, we were in an area that frequently got flooded, along with the iron foundries or some mint works, the other heavy industry of the town. But it was a town that boasted nine breweries in its time and very much that sort of industrial centre. Lewis, uh, as a county town, go up the hill, you've got the Norman Castle, you've got the uh, house where Tom Paine lived, uh, so good good U.S. connection there. Really? Absolutely. Tom Paine, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I brew a beer called Tom Paine. He was probably my all-time hero um, historical figure, but uh, <laughs> wow. come to that anon, perhaps. All right. Um, so... Um, Yes, very much a Georgian market town with the sizes and uh, with its market, large agricultural belt around the town, so all the raw materials of brewing coming from the farm, all the byproducts of brewing go back to the farm. And it's, it's an interchange that really hasn't um, altered very much with us. I mean, we still send our spent grains to the local agricultural college for their dairy herd. We're sending our spent hops to the local organic uh, market gardens. And there is this feeling that we are very much... Um, in tandem with the agricultural community, buying local raw materials and producing a product whose distribution is really not much more than 60 uh, kilometres. So very much uh, local, local market, local raw materials, local beer. Hmm. Uh, tell us about your brewery. I've just toured the brewery, so... Um... I, well, I've seen it, and it's extraordinary, uh, but uh, well, it's a paint, bit like, paint a picture. a bit like walking through uh, a, a piece of brewing heritage, and um, it, it comes at a cost. I mean, we are literally uh, brewing as brewing was done a uh, hundred years ago. Obviously, we've replaced plant. Uh, there is a more modern stainless steel plant and cooling systems than we would have had in those days. But intrinsically, no, it is very much hands-on. The malt room is very much the same. The hop store, the mash tun floor, uh, we're brewing in vessels that go back to the 1920s in some instances. And um, we try to replace plant in a sympathetic manner, which maintains the traditions and heritage of that style of brewing, uh, open fermenters in, in the tun room. So very much as brewing would have been done uh, over 150 years ago, uh, obviously more controls, we have greater knowledge, we have better cleaning agents, and um, we are really just perpetuating that uh, tradition. Our main brand is our best bitter, which was evolved in the 1950s, uh, probably constitutes a good um, 85% of our production. But then within the other 15%, we have a, a range of different beers which cover just about every style imaginable. And we're always looking to innovate. So I think the important thing about having a traditional brewery and brewing on that scale is that you do always reflect, look on yourself, reinvent yourself, and make yourselves relevant to the times that you live in. Mm. Um, the uh, uh, t talk a little bit. You, you talked about the bitter. Talk about some of your other beers, including we had uh, an interesting experience with a uh, imperial stout. You're yeah, brewing, indeed. but uh, you brew some other beers. So talk about well, those as well. Yes, in nineteen um, ninety, I started. Um, a program of seasonal brews. I think we were the first brewery to do so. Uh, and basically the object was to produce a different beer every month that would be for one month only. Mm. So you, you could guarantee that when it went out into trade, the public would have it in prime condition. It wouldn't be hanging around in bars for months afterwards and lose its reputation. It came out at the beginning of the month. It went out at the end of the month. And so we started to create the various different um, brews and styles that we wanted to give to a very receptive and inquiring uh, public. 
So at the beginning of the year, in February, we reproduced a recipe from 1859, a porter brew, which we now actually keg as a black stout as well. Um, So March, um, we... um, (laughs) uh, Sorry, porter is March. February, we we, we actually did a a, a beer... um, called Kiss, and we brew it with a healthy proportion of um, malted oats. And again, it has a a local heritage. It was actually to uh, commemorate the return of Rodin's Kiss to Lewis for an exhibition. Hmm. We actually had um, Rodin's Kiss given to the town uh, as a a gift, but the Lewis people during the First World War were slightly um, embarrassed by its uh, suggestiveness. Uh, particularly with a lot of uh, soldiers billeted in the town and a lot of young girls um, around as well. So they decided to send it to the Tate, which they did, and we got it back for a brief period um, for for an exhibition in Lewis. So to celebrate the returned kiss, we did a Valentine's beer uh, in this nature. So so that was February. Then March we get Porter. Uh, March, April, we do a beer called Knots of May. It's, it's, It's a light, mild and it's named after a group of Lady Morris dancers called the Knots of May, who have the flower as their emblem. And again, it was to produce a style of beer that was not produced today. So uh, April, uh, May, um, we do something... Uh, oh, Knots of May. Um, I'm really mucking up on this interview. It must be having lunch with you. April. <laughs> April's a totally different brew. <laughs> Knots of May is in May. Sounds logical, doesn't it? Uh, and in April, we do a beer called Georgian Dragon. Now, this is a ruby ale, and it's um, named after uh, Gideon Mantell, really, who was the guy who found uh, dinosaur uh, remains in, in Sussex fossils and, and put together an awful lot of uh, geological um, facts and um, oh, broke new ground in, in research in, in that area. So uh, Gideon Mantell, we remember, uh, with a bear called Georgian Dragon because the um, dinosaur fossils that he was creating were thought of as being dragons in their day. So we thought it was rather fun to have a Georgian character discovering these fossils. So that, that, that's April. May I've just done. June, uh, we do a beer called Copper Wheat, and it's a wheat beer, and it's a Cristal. And uh, again, it has local heritage because there was a splendid lady called Mrs. Henry Dudeney who wrote Penny Dreadful novels, and she based a lot of her work on um, the local area. And she wrote a novel called Seed Pods, which was about a Lewis brewing family. And she published this, but she called the family the Copper Wheats. So we produce a beer called Copper Wheat, which is our wheat beer, which seemed appropriate. And then July, July the 4th, hurrah, we reach um, Tom Paine, uh, Uh, who obviously had a big impact in the United States, but also in England. I mean, my goodness, one of the most advanced thinkers of his day, universal suffrage, universal education, women's rights, old age pensions, unemployment benefit, you name it, Tom Paine was there before everyone. He is my all-time hero. And um, he... um, was an excise officer uh, in Lewis. So we thought, well, we'll go for excise standard gravity and we'll produce a beer, 1055, uh, called Tom Paine, which we did. And uh, that, again, now goes out every year. July is the Tom Paine season. Uh, August, we do a beer called Lewis Castle Brown, uh, which is uh, strong brown ale. Uh, and uh, then September, we do a harvest ale with green hops, Southdown Harvest. Uh, October, we do a splendid beer called Star of Eastbourne. Uh, Now, this is like an original IPA would have been when it was going out with the East India Company to the Indies. It's not the style of IPA that we see today. It's well hopped, but it's also very balanced and it's got that sort of Burtonization quality to it. So we were really trying to reproduce uh, a, a piece of brewing history and we do it on draft at five and a half percent and then a bottled version at six and a half percent just to bring the changes and then we hit our old ale season uh, which is a, a strong dark mild at about 4.3 percent which we run for six months and mm. uh, that goes through the winter and the the advent of old is eagerly awaited by um, our uh, 
public uh, every year. They gather for the launch of old at the end of September. And um, we, we have a big celebration for that. And that rocks on through the winter months. But in between, we do uh, another beer called Bonfire Boy for the November the 5th celebrations, which is slightly smoked. Uh, and then, of course, we do a Christmas ale for Christmas, which is always good fun because we have it blessed. Um, the Lewis had a Cluniac uh, Priory, uh, obviously uh, dissolved in the um, 16th century, but um, it had been brewing at the time. And, of course, the monks were the fathers of modern brewing. So uh, we, we brew a Christmas ale to mark the, um, the, the festival. And um, we always have a, a priest in to bless the brew with us, so that's always good fun as well. And then we steep it with new seasons hops, and we send it out in Advent. So that, that's that's always good fun. And then we come round to the beginning of the year again, um, and there is a summer brew that we do called Olympia, which is a, a light sort of lager-like cask-conditioned beer. But you, you you get the idea. There is a, a brew every month. And then we also do some very fine barley wines. The Christmas ale stays in uh, bottle all the year round. We do a beer called Elizabethan Ale, which is a strong, light-coloured barley wine at 7.5%. We do a sweet stout. And um, we also do our Imperial Extra Double Stout, which is this extraordinary Russian stout that... um, harks back to the uh, 18th century, and it is an exact reproduction of how beer would have been brewed in the 1780s. And we um, have about a third coloured malts within the grist, and a very high hop rate. I think it's an IBU of about 150 when we brew it. It comes down to about uh, 50 at the end of the day. And we store it in um, tank after primary fermentation, where after about six months it goes through a very rapid secondary fermentation with uh, a wild yeast, which we think is endemic uh, within it, but obviously doesn't come through in normal brewing. Uh, When your own yeast is totally um, exhausted, it comes through, and after a long lag phase, it gets underway. So we move from 7.5% to about 9% in conditioning tank with this very rapid secondary fermentation. And then we bottle that as a bottle conditioned beer. And this beer, I'm interested in this beer and we haven't talked about it. So um, talk about that wild yeast, which is a weird yeast I hadn't heard of. Yeah, we had to have it identified because we didn't know what it was. And it looked so similar to our own. But it's actually a yeast called Debromyces hansenii. And um, I think it was first isolated in 1926. Uh, But it is now in the the yeast bank. And... um, that, that seems to be um, a cross between Pekir and Bretonomyces. Uh, it has genes of both in it. So we, we think it is just an offshoot, a wild yeast of those two somewhere, somehow. <laughs> and um, it certainly works for us. It gives it a, a very good tart quality, but not something which is so sour you can't drink it. It's just a beautifully balanced um, acidity, um, balanced by the hot bitterness, balanced by the high PG of the beer at the end of the day, which has a sweetness there. Um, It's been described in in, in many ways. Somebody said it was a sweet and sour beer. Uh, Somebody called it a Marmite beer. You either love it or you hate it. (laughs) Uh, But I think um, my favorite description of it was um, uh, liqueur chocolate, and um, it does have that taste to it. And... um, it's just a marvellous drink, and but, but people uh, say, oh, you know, you can't drink much of it. Well, I, I can happily drink half a pint of it, and frequently we do. Uh, but you, you've got to remember that beer in those days of that strength was not drunk in quart pints. I mean, you, you had small ale glasses, and I serve imperial stout instead of port uh, after a meal with cheese. We will have imperial stout and cheese rather than port and cheese uh, because it needs to be treated with that respect and, dare I say, it reverence. You know, it, it is a, um, a, a splendid accompaniment to very strong cheeses. And um, it, it has a good uh, heritage. It goes back to the uh, days of the uh, Albert Lecoq exporting his... Um, 
stouts from London brewers, particularly Barclay, uh, Barclays Brewery. Um, and we were actually asked by the Lecoq Brewery in Estonia to produce um, a, a stout uh, for an importer in America, which is what we did. And, and that's how that beer got that started? went there. It went to be united in New York, and it was at their request. And um, uh, Matthias Needhart there had um, obviously got the Lecoq Brewery on side to do it with us. And that was the beginning of us doing it, recreating that style of beer. And what year was that? That would have been um, in the late 90s. I think it was about 1999. Well, it's the 20th anniversary then. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> thought of that. It is. You have to have some big celebration. And when is that beer released? Uh, well, we, we release it when we bottle it. We, we hold it in tank. We then hold it in bottle until it's ready to go, and then we release it. But um, the first time we, we brewed it, um, we were doing it in cork bottles. And we had sent a load to America when, to my horror, I saw the samples in my office uh, slowly expanding with the cork rising up through the foil and <laughs> sort of hitting the roof like an exploding champagne bottle. And I thought, my goodness, I've got a lot of this in America. Uh, this is not good news, but we survived the experience. We're going back a long way. And um, we now actually do condition it out totally in, in tank before we bottle it. There's a very small amount left that comes through on secondary fermentation. And that's that... Uh, that, that... Uh, what do you call it? The the special yeast, the the, the Debremyces hanseni, the wild yeast that's in it. Yeah, yeah. It probably took you a while to figure out how long to let that uh, finish out attenuating. Well, it, it and... did because we we had first of all left it six months, and then after we'd had this unfortunate experience, I, I thought, well, we'll leave it longer. And after about six to nine months, it really did kick in with a vengeance. So, you know, it was a, a strange thing to, to play with and find out. And of course, you're tying up a brewing vessel for 18 months. So it's a niche beer. We, we make nothing out of it whatsoever financially, but it is um, a marvellous beer to produce. And we have a you know, great fun going back and being able to say to people, right, this is how your forebears would have drunk beer in this country. It's an absolute re authentic reproduction of that beer. That's amazing. And does that beer still go to the United States? Yes, it does. Yeah, no, they, they take um, the, the old palate occasionally. I mean, obviously, since we started, so many people have produced imperial stouts. I mean, you know, we were very much... Um, in the aftermath of Courage, who had stopped producing it, right. I think they've now produced it again, uh, but but we were filling a void after they had departed the scene and before anyone else got weaving with it, really. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have great fondness for it. It's probably won us more awards than any beer that we've produced ever. <laughs> I mean, it's true that there are a lot of Imperial Stouts out there now, but this is a, it really sounds like uh, with this special yeast, which I'd never even heard of until I... You know, learned about it from from you. I, I I've not tasted this beer, and I'm really excited to try it. So well, we will, we, we'll we'll do it do it online if you like. I'll, I'll get a bottle in a moment. We we can. Oh, that would be great. We can talk it through. Yeah, that would be spectacular. I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I and I think you know that that gives you a certain rare quality, even among all those uh, uh, imperial stout makers. So that that seems. That seems very cool. Before we leave the beers, though, mm. I want to go back to your green uh, green hop beer. Oh, yeah. Beer. How long have you been brewing that? Gosh, since I would say around 2001, two, somewhere around there. Yeah. yeah, so the United States, we now have these kinds of beers, uh, and they're becoming much more popular, especially right. in the Pacific Northwest, where we're from. Um, but that's a very early example. How did you hear about it how did it was it what, I where think did that... there was a fa I, I, it wasn't um, sort of born out of harvest stable um, th there were other people doing it and I think the Bear and Pub Association in Britain said oh let's you know have a festival of these beers so we thought oh, well we'll pitch in and do but uh, ironically I wanted to do a beer that was not particularly hoppy I wanted to do something that was of the harvest mm -hmm. so I wanted something that had a real malt character to it but the hop um, against the background as it were and um, 
We we brewed with uh, a good percentage of Munich malt to get a good sort of malt character, mm-hmm. and uh, with pale ale malt, and um, uh, a hop grist of local hops because it's celebrating obviously a, a local harvest. But then on the morning of brewing, and the, the, the great problem with the beer is that it goes out for the beginning of September. Well, very few hops are actually picked before the end of August, so you, you really do have to cut it fine. And um, we, we have a hop grower up the road at Roberts Bridge, about 30 miles away, uh, Andrew Hode, and they've been brewing there for, for centuries on Church Farm. And he always um, tests his equipment with hops that he brings in for us to use for the green hop brew. Nice. So basically, we, we will pick up about 80 pounds of hops straight off the vine. We'll uh, race out uh, to, to his garden, shove them in the back of the car, shoot back to the brewery in time to put them into the copper for the half-hour additions. And then we cast onto this enormous bit of hops in the hop back. Okay. And they're, they're normally goldings that he, he does because that's the earliest variety that he's got flowering that we can, you know, um, can pick. And it's, it's a muted quality to it, but it's, it's, um, very much of that moment and of, of that harvest. And there's a freshness about it. And it's, it's just a lovely tradition. And, you know, brewing is so much, you know, tradition. And this is a beer that goes on cask. Goes on cask, goes in bottle, yeah. We don't uh, have a very strong cask tradition, as you know, in the United States. And I have never had, we call them fresh hop beers, but I've never had a green hop beer uh, on cask. And I... Uh, now I'm now that's you put that in my head, and I wonder what that tastes like and how. Well, we we can try one. We'll right. we'll, we'll try it. You have? Are they? Are we they could have out? had one at lunch. Oh, we could. Have. <laughs> yeah. So the green, they're they're it's, out. It's, that, it's that been yeah, yeah, it's, in fact, I mean, we're coming to the middle of September. I'm just running out of stocks of it because we only do enough to go through to the month. So by the time people have taken in this week's and sold it, we'll be through and on to the next. We'll be on to. And when. Um, I think it's I, I think it's really cool when we were walking through the brewery uh, to hear about your hops. Uh, I come from Oregon where we're into hops um, sure. and grow, growing hops. Will you talk about the local hops here? Where people Americans may not be aware of where Sussex is, but it's uh, south uh, east of London. Am I doing that? Sure. Right? South, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're to the south coast. Uh, to, on the south coast, just below. Brighton. So the area of the Weald uh, around um, Sussex and Kent is the area that we get our hops from. We, we are between sort of Surrey and Kent, and um, we're buying hops from Sussex, Surrey and Kent. 40% from Sussex, 40% from Kent, and 20% from Surrey. Uh, a lot of our fuggles from Surrey, which is a, a, a wilt-free area. They're, they're very... Um, lucky there because the infection is not has never been a part of uh, the, the county thankfully um, and um, that, that roughly approximates to the volume of our beers that we sell in uh, our native and adjoining counties and we're contracting four years ahead with our hop growers uh, agreeing prices so that it gives our growers an incentive to invest in their hop gardens and gives us a continuity of supply, not only with those local growers, but with the traditional aroma varieties of hops that we want to brew with. And you're using whole hops, which is... We're using whole hops, yeah, which we use to filter the worts in the hop back. Yeah, so describe so, that process. I think maybe some people... we In America, we talk about whirlpools, which is not the same thing as a hop No, back. well, with a whirlpool, normally you've got processed hops. They've been sort of pelletized and you're using that sort of um, centripetal force to spin out and create a, a bright wort. So so with um, hops that have come off the bine, you are looking... I mean, if you've seen a picture of hops on a bine, it's the cones that we're actually brewing with. So they get sort of hurled into the copper and uh, vast bags of hops going in, which uh, go round in the boil. Um, and then at the end of the requisite period, we drop the entire contents of the copper to the hop back below. And that's sort of hops floating around in suspension of the the brewing sugars. And there they sit for about 10 minutes, and then we circulate round and round. And we create a really compact bed of hops in the base of the vessel. 
and after a further 10 minutes stand, we start pumping the worts up for cooling. So they pass through this bed of hops that we've created, and the hops form the most splendid organic filter bed, and the sugars go up as bright as an Amontillado sherry. They look really good. <laughs> and they do, because when we were touring the brewery, we were watching the uh, wort uh, 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 go through, I don't know what that little glass is. It just, just a sight glass. A yeah, sight glass, yeah. and it was, it was crystal clear. It looked great. It looked, looked like uh, it was ready to serve. Uh, so... Did you want to try on the podcast? Did you want to try one of those? Russian scouts? stamps. Yeah, yeah, I will go and get some. That's, let's do that. I'll, I'll put this on pause and we can come back. All right. Are you ready to come back? Okay. Here we are. Uh, and Miles has just poured out um, this current bottling, which has just come out of your uh, Yes, this stout. would have been uh, our 2018 vintage. Okay. Okay. So uh, it would have been brewed in 2018 and bottled in 2019. Okay, and brewed at the beginning of the year, so it's it's had a good twelve to eighteen months conditioning. Yep. Wow! All right, well, let's give it a try, and you okay. can tell us what you're tasting. Okay. Have you? I assume you've had this beer already. This I, year. I've I've tried it once or twice. I have to confess. Yeah. Mm. So, interesting on the nose. It is very. You get interesting. a good spirit content on, on the nose, don't you? You do. You also get a ton of fruit. Yeah. It is really, fruit, really fruity. A little bit of acidity. A little bit of... Um, well, I mean, you can imagine so many things with the spirits. Right, okay, let's try the taste. Well, I would say that's incredibly rounded. Mm. There's a very high spirit content. It's actually warming uh, on the... Um, on the back of the throat, um, as you say, quite fruity, quite vinous. Uh, you, you get the impact of um, the coloured malts within it, but it's muted. It's not the sort of acrid quality that you can get with a beer that is uh, a third coloured malt, and that's got black amber and um, brown malt. I was going to say, does it traditional have brown, malt? brown, you know, malt stout? It has that acrid brown malt quality, so yeah. I would have it's been, a, yeah, it definitely but, does. But it's, but it's muted, it's, it's, it uh, and you, you've got a, 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 a good residual sweetness which you need to balance out the very high hop rate. I mean, you're using about um, six times, six, seven times as many hops. On a pint of this as you are on a pint of best bitter right so it's, it's very high and um, as I say it does come down with storage but um, you've got a good bitterness there good hot bitterness um, you don't pick up much hop character because it's blasted out by other things but the bitterness is certainly there yeah. and um, I, I, ju I just feel that it is a very balanced uh, example you, you, you can go to extremes uh, with, with a beer like this and, and you wouldn't want to go back for another sip necessarily but with this you do you return to it and obviously the yeast character is there as well you do get that slight hint of bread um, you do uh, get a bit of our own primary yeast and um, it's all muted it's it's, it's there as it's, it's like a well-constructed symphony um, the parts all contribute to a final crescendo. Does that sound a bit naff? Yeah, probably it does. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed. Uh, have you tasted this beer before it goes through that secondary fermentation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we taste it the whole time before uh -huh. we actually... How does it change? What, what is... Oh, it's, I mean, to begin with, it's very dull and um, acrid and uh, oil-like almost. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just something which is rather... Um, uninteresting uh, and you think mm, yeah I don't think I'm going to drink that again for a bit we'll leave that for a couple of months <laughs> <laughs> so you do get this marvellous transformation with it um, somebody said that when porters were first produced before storage uh, period they tasted like rusty nails. I mean, I've never tried rusty nails, but I'm sure they're right. You know, I mean, you do get this rather metallic, um, flat um, quality to a, a green bear of that nature. Huh. Yeah, I mean, 
by the description of brown malt, which they were predominantly made with, yep. that they, they must have been terrible. They must have just before they went through their aging period, they must have been undrinkable beers. I, I would guess. Although I did one, I did a version of this entirely with brown malt. We called it brown bull, and it was I, I reproduced it from a recipe that they'd done at, at a Lewis brewery across the road, the Bear Brewery. And um, it was actually as they would have brewed it in the 1820s. Wow. And it, it was an extraordinary beer. And it fermented the brown malt. It, it was extraordinary. It, it literally came over the top of the fermenting vessel like a cappuccino gone wild. I mean, it was extraordinary. Uh, and <laughs> why, we didn't know. But, uh, you know, like all these things, you, you, you have to... Um, assume that uh, that they had better control in in those days. Probably far colder fermentation. I'm shocked that it, it fermented at all. Uh, no, it, it was it was only a, a percentage of brown. Okay. I mean, we, it was with pale ale okay. malt, you, but it, it was only brown malt and pale ale malt that we were using. Gotcha. So it was a because some of those old uh, British brewers were making these beers before hydrometers were invented, before Sacramento. They were, and, yeah. and they didn't know anything about conversion. No, it was or trial anything. and error. <laughs> and in fact, I mean, I've got a lovely entry in one of the brewing books uh, where uh, John Harvey says that he lit a brazier underneath the tun to bring it on in heat because the fermentation had stopped in wow. the cold of the winter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, my goodness, you know. Lighting a brazier in a brewery, I don't think they'd be very happy today, you know, but uh, right. underneath a wooden fermenting vessel with sort of heat <laughs> rising, you do wonder. There's there's a local brewer in, in Portland, a home brewer, uh, early craft brewer, and they had the same problem. They put um, electric blankets, this was the 1980s, around oh, theirs. Right. So that's a little safer, perhaps, yeah, yeah. than an open safer. fire. Yeah, why don't they? Yeah. <laughs> electric blankets and beer floating around might not be the safest. Well, yeah, that's true. I don't know about that. Um, you said that this wild yeast where did it come from how did it how did well, it get we, in this we don't know we honestly don't know I am assuming that it is within our yeast because as I said we've never cultured our yeast we've been brewing with it for uh, well 60 years uh, plus and um, we simply take it off one brew and put it into the next um, if something is in the background in a very, very small quantity, it's not going to actually do anything other than just sit there. If you do it in a beer like this, where there is tremendous potential and you're leaving it in a tank where it's already 8% ABV and the original brewing yeast has decided to pack it in and sink to the bottom, uh, then this is in a state where if it can find uh, a pathway... Um, it will ferment quite readily and there's no competition and suddenly after a fairly long lag phase while it gets its population up it goes totally berserk and we get these phenomenal secondary fermentations occurring. This is an amazing uh, kind of living example of English brewing history in that um, there used to be mild and stale beers and the mild beers were the sweet beers that were served um, before the wild yeast had a chance to come on, yeah, yeah. and uh, you're kind of doing that. You, you have your your uh, you know your regular beer lineup, which of course just tastes like beer. And but if you let it sit long enough, it's yeah. like putting it in a wooden cask, and you're kind of making a version of stale beer. Uh, that yeah, is. You know, certainly a soured beer to that extent, but through. The, the, the yeast rather than through bacteria. I mean, we, right. we, with the, the sort of hot break we've got, it's pretty good at, you know, holding lactics at bay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even through an 18-month storage period. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating from that point of view. It's really, that's amazing. I I, um, I came for the bitter, but I've been enchanted by this beer. So that's a, that's that's a great story. Um, well, I think that's all I have. Uh, thank you so much for your time. You're and really welcome. We'll head off and try some Harvest Ale. Well, I would love to do that. Let's do that. Okay. All right, cheers. Cheers. So that, that was really cool, and it takes me back to the interviews we had with these head brewers, as you mentioned, eight years ago, uh, sitting in a room uh, discussing uh, beer. It, uh, I, can, I, can, I can visualize the scene exactly. Uh, what a lovely man. Yeah, I missed I missed not having you there. Actually, I, I thought of you a lot on this trip. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry I can't join you uh, next time. Yeah, next uh, time. Uh, so yeah, what was 
particularly uh, because I mentioned it when we talked about the Fresh Hops Fest at the beginning of the pod, what particularly stood out to me just because I hadn't, I didn't expect it at all, is that they've been doing a Fresh Hop beer for the last, what, nine, ten years. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah, which they call green, which they call green hop, which is funny. Yeah, <laughs> a green hop beer. <laughs> Uh, so that's really cool. Um, okay. So, uh, I'm not going to do because, because we're already pretty long. We're going to, uh, put off the mailbag till, uh, next week, um, where we'll do an extended mailbag segment because it's bulging. But, uh, instead of, uh, a Sherpa, what I wanted to do since you're not here is just to ask you if there've been a few beers that you've had along the way that particularly stood out, uh, to you, um, sort of as a, as a sort of quasi Sherpa for those looking for beer in England? Yeah. Uh, I will tell you about uh, two beers that I had. And, and maybe if we have another podcast and we talk a little bit about Britain in the future, I'll tell you about more beers. But two I'll, I'll highlight. One is a, a kind of a classic. Um, that they're actually both modern. What, one thing, when I, the reason I went to the uh, UK was to find out whether American craft beer had changed the uk the last time you and i were in uh london there were around about 15 breweries and there are now 120 um yeah cascale was in bad shape when we were there before and by all accounts it's 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 even getting worse yeah uh so i I was just you know i was interested to see is the the national tradition of, of britain declining is there a change what's american craft brewing doing and all that stuff and the thing that I was most excited to discover was craft beer has begun to inform craft brewing, uh, uh, cask brewing <clears throat> in such a way that some of these younger breweries are coming back to cask. A lot of times they'll launch off into a really American direction and then kind of rediscover cask. And, but the cool thing is because they're not a brewery like Harvey's, which would never mess with their bitter, they've been making it for decades. Right. Uh, they, they think let's, let's take some of the new things that we've learned in those decades and see what happens. And because they understand cask, which is a different format and presents beer differently. I was just talking to, uh, Yvonne debates here in, in Brussels and he was, he's, he's dabbled with putting his beer on cask and he makes a, a Belgian stout. And he said, you know, when he puts that on cask, it tastes so radically different. It doesn't work at all. You have to, it, it works great on keg and it's terrible on cask. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm now learning that you have to brew to cask. Well, you do have to brew to cask. It's a really different presentation. And so these, these young brewers are trying to figure out how do I get that tropicality that we like, that kind of saturated hop uh, juiciness uh-huh. without sacrificing what we love in cask. And two breweries, I think, are doing a great job. One is a more classic version and it's in Manchester and they do, uh, it's called it's the, it's marble brewing uh, and they were founded back in legendary the mid nineties. Yeah. Legendary marble brewing. They were founded in the mid nineties and they've, they've really been devoted to cask the whole time. Uh, they have six, ten, uh, six poles in the marble arch there. They're, uh, the pub that they were founded in. But, um, in each case they're, they're, starting to use more and more American hops. And uh, it's not a huge juiciness, but it's very clear. And they make one beer called Pint, which mm-hmm. is <laughs> a very basic name. but uh, And it's got this kind of really spritzy, lemony hops that go over the top of, of this classic 4% cask. Amazing. Um, I think if you love a good cask pint, if you're drinking J.W. Lee's bitter, you're going to taste that and think it tastes totally familiar, but uh, interesting, updated, a little bit brighter and, and fresher. So that one's very cool uh, in Manchester, get that pint. And the other one that really blew my mind, and I wrote a blog post about this, is a brewery called Wylam, which is up in Newcastle. And they have a beer called Galatia, and it is full-on juicy. They saturated <laughs> that sucker in, like, tropicality. Yeah, you sent me a message a way, about that one. Yeah, oh. it was it was. It was done in such a way that it didn't sacrifice the cask. You still had the, uh, the, 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 the malt quality and the balance mm-hmm. were all there. Yeah. But it just had, it just had this, and, you know, the balance point was shifted more towards hops, but all the, all the, the hops, the yeast, and the uh, uh, malt were all in harmony. Uh, and I think, I think there's not an American on the planet who would taste that and not, well, who, who likes IPAs anyway, and not, not really recognize it. I mean, I think you could even sell that to Americans. So it was, 
a fantastic beer. Yeah. Uh, Wylam Galatia. I'm envisioning, envisioning a bready, biscuity uh, bitter with a nice little tropical uh, flavor on top. It sounds amazing. It was amazing. Cool. So I'm gonna. I have a million questions uh, to ask about uh, all these themes you just brought up, but uh, we're actually gonna put that off till next pod, where we're gonna do a little bit of a deep, extemporaneous deep dive into your uh, England experience and what what uh, craft beer looks like uh, currently. Uh, so we'll put that off till next time. So uh, we need to put a lid on this pod. Uh, so uh, thanks again for listening to the podcast. Uh, we'd like to encourage you to rate us, uh, review us, and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Uh, uh, I guess the rating and reviewing, maybe that's on iTunes. I don't know. Either way, uh, let people know about us. It helps let people know about us and listeners find us. Um, we'd also like to thank, again, uh, uh, a very hearty we'd like to extend a very hearty thank you to Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana Podcast for partnering partnering with us really um, visit them when you're in Hood River, Oregon and you can visit them at uh, freembeer.com that's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R dot com uh, okay a few more words about uh, how to contact us on the way out um, thank you very much our mailbag is starting to get uh, thicker uh, 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 bigger and bigger bulging more and more uh, each week, so we're really uh, encouraged by that. We'd love to hear feedback, uh, good or bad, uh, and um, it's not all good, so that's fine. <laughs> you can email Jeff at beervanablog.com. Uh, uh, email him the bad stuff. Uh, you visit the Beervana Blog Facebook page. Uh, <laughs> you can also send your uh, questions or comments. Jeff blogs at Beervana Blog and tweets it at Beervana, so you can contact us through Twitter. I tweet at Beeronomics. Uh, so lots of ways to contact us. Please do uh, let us know your thoughts. Let us know your opinions, uh, your knowledge, criticisms, and uh, all are welcome. Okay, I think I, did. <laughs> I think that's all the outro. It's weird not having you here, Jeff. It's lonely. Sorry. It's lonely here in the in the studio. Don't freak out, man. I'm kind of freaking out, but it's all right. I'm I a, tell. I can tell. I'm a, I'm a se- I'm a semi pro. I'll I'll figure this out. Imagine what it's like to be in a the smallest hotel room in Belgium. <laughs> Yeah, but you're in Belgium, so I'm, and you've been drinking for six hours, so I'm not, I'm not taking any. Uh, I have no pity. All right. Well, uh, well, well. I don't think I, I. I appreciate that, you bastard. Well, you don't have anything to cheers with, but I am still drinking this lovely Freem Pilsner, which is uh, exceptional, flawless, uh, and um, as you say, very bright. So I'm going to cheers myself. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's really, it's really good to, to, uh, uh, to hear from you, Jeff. Uh, Will says goodbye. Uh, we say goodbye until next time, Jeff, which won't be long. Uh, we'll talk about All England. Right. Uh, enjoy your uh, Belgium adventure and uh, cheers. How do you say cheers? cheers? How do you say cheers in Flemish, Jeff? Uh, Prost. I think or Prost. 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 I don't know. One of them. <laughs> All right. Next time you're gonna know. Yeah, I will. Well, I won't because we're going to record it right now. Yeah, right. (laughs) Hey, wait a minute. You're breaking down the third wall. The fourth wall. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) X-ray.